There you are. Getting all my stuff ready. Yes. It's weird. You're two minutes early. Every now and then we get lucky. And I was coming in from the clinic. So I met Susie, the bookkeeper out there, and got checks signed and did stuff. Yes. And then, oh my gosh, it's two o'clock. I get to get, and traffic was good and life was good. And it all just flowed. Yeah. And I had three days of actual vacation. Talk about that. What did you do? I, I, I'd show you pictures if I could, but y'all can look it up online. I was going to go to Glacier and halfway point was Spokane. So I looked for hotels in Spokane and the Davenport historic hotel came up and I took one look at the lobby and said, must stay there. The place is like an art gallery with room keys. Wow. And it was built in 1914. Worked as a hotel for, I don't know, 50 years. And then fell into disrepair. And sometime, I forget the dates, 80s or 90s, the a company bought it that was going to tear it down and put up a parking lot, parking structure. And the city said, asbestos. And the parking lot people went, oh, never mind. We were just kidding. So they backed out of the deal. The Davenport's were local merchants, businessmen. They bought the place and restored it, cleaned it up. (laughs) If we could figure out a way to get people there, because it's a regional airport, you'd have to fly to Seattle and then to Spokane or Portland and then Spokane. One of the meeting rooms has a chandelier that weighs 10,000 pounds. Now it's a lot bigger than a meeting, but the meeting room we could use is light green with arches and Tiffany stained glass up at the top. And it's, there's one meeting room that has an imported Italian mural on the ceiling. Wow. That would be a great place to have a practicum because people who are supine could just look up and see things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, I guess I can announce it now because I have a draft lease. We have a frequency-specific seminars, Troutdale campus. Yes. You had mentioned maybe getting that little bonus area last week, that beautiful area where we did the practicum for the sports course. And I think you did the two-day the two day there as well. Yeah. And I'm so excited. I will have a lease. I'm so excited. We haven't signed it yet. Needs a little tweaks, but next year we'll probably maybe alternate you notice I haven't talked to Kevin about this because I just got back but probably two-day practicum one month five-day core in person the next two-day practicum but we don't get on planes you've done enough I, I have I'm and September 2nd is my 77th birthday and that's saying that out loud it's okay I have no business sleeping in airports when they cancel flights. I don't think anybody should be sleeping in airports, but especially you. You've done it and you've traveled and people can come to you now, especially the amazing facility that you have. It's going to be so cool. I'm so excited. Anyway, so what's the theme? 
So the, the theme took some different turns. So initially, I wanted to talk a little bit more about post-operative care because it hits a bunch of different, we can go in a bunch of different directions. You can take your direction. I can take my direction. The reason why I wanted to start there is because it's the summertime for a lot of my athletes. It's an off season. So a lot of them are getting all their little bits and pieces tightened up and, and ready. And FSM has been such an amazing tool for post-operative care. Also in acute care, when all the manual therapists are just dying to get your hands on somebody, but maybe you can't. So mm-hmm. I wanted yeah. to sort of talk a little bit about that. And I also did want to talk about seminars and, and stuff like that too, and education, because my quote of the day jumped out first and it didn't really match up with surgery. So I'm going to have to steer the bus back over to education towards the end so I could utilize my quote. We could start with your quote. No. Okay. I don't mean to derail the bus, but now you've got me curious. So soon. Normally you wait till at least half a podcast before you throw a a monkey wrench. Put a teaser out like that. Okay. Let me pull it up because I don't want to mess it up here. I actually had two. I always, either I have no quotes or I have three of them. Okay. I'll just say it first and then we can talk about it. A man's mind is stretched by new ideas and may never return to its original dimension. Oh, true story. So it works with FSM and so many different things, because one of the big components I always talk about, especially now in the sports advanced stuff, is um, plasticity. And plasticity is not like elasticity, which FSM is amazing for. But when you're working with, I always use my gymnasts, for example, we're trying to increase the plastic range of motion so that things don't return right away so that they can do the splits for a long period of time. My goalies are trying to get their hips in that plastic range so they can do the splits and lay level with the ice and whatever else. But there's also neuroplasticity. And when I was reading that quote, this is exactly what we say is the whole, you're welcome and I'm sorry. You as a practitioner will never think about treatments, diagnoses, assessments the same way ever again. That is, it will never go back to that original limited dimension. I know. And it's not completely inconsistent with the segue to surgery because it is assumed that your pain level will be X after surgery. Your bruising and swelling will be X after surgery. So my brain will never return to normal after we cut the gauze off of Terrell Owens' leg. And it's the first patient I'd ever treated immediately after surgery and for 24 straight hours. So 24 hours straight of microcurrent. You cut the bandage off, zero swelling, zero bruising. And Burke Holder says, how do I take advantage of what you can do? And I said, I have no idea because I've never done anything like this before. So you have to believe what believe what you hear. And that kind of segues into everything we treat, including surgical procedures, but right. everything. So I actually, believe it or not, I started rereading the resonance effect because I forget what I said seven years ago. And it's like the path to cure 
the path to relief, if you don't want to call it a cure, but the path to relief has to follow the path that you travel to get to illness, injury. You, you have to go back the same way. Yeah. So if you're treating somebody's knee and the problem is the hip and the ankle and the arch of the foot, once you've got FSM and it's not just strengthening the quads and taping the knee, once you've seen that connection between the ankle, the knee and the hip, and we talk about it in the core, you can't ever unsee it. Right. So your quote is perfect. I love it at the beginning. It sets the track. And then the same thing with surgery. So we have this whole post-op suite in the custom care. And somebody will say, what do I run? And it's a surgery that I've never prepped for before. They're going to take out six inches of my large intestine. Don't exactly have a surgery for that. But how are they going to do it? open or laparoscopic, and then you follow the path that they're going to travel to get to your large intestine that they're going to take out. Now, you've got ulcerative colitis. If they don't take it out, you're going to die. So it's okay with me if they take it out. Way to go. But what are they going to traumatize or intersect with on their way there? Right. The skin you do last, subcutaneous fat, bunch of capillaries, fascia, connective tissue, if it's going to be an open procedure and you're thinking of the linea alba, bunch of connective tissue, then there's the omentum, then they have to take the small bowel, move it out of the way, so that's going to have an opinion, and then they take out the nasty part of the large intestine. And then they're going to put in an ileostomy or no ileostomy? Ileostomy. Okay. So then you have to consider the part of the large intestine that's going to get taken over to your abdomen to put in the ileostomy that's temporary till everything heals up. But you're going to have to treat the skin, the subcutaneous fat, the fascia, the connective tissue. That's supposed to support the ileostomy. For practitioners, if you've never encountered what's done during a colectomy, where they're taking out a piece of the colon, you have to do some homework. Thank God for Dr. Google. How do they do that? Okay. (laughs) What tissue is it? What's wrong with it? Poor thing. So the first day of the surgery is five hours long because of how many tissues, trauma, paralysis, allergy reaction, and hours spent on stopping hemorrhage. Hours spent on torn or broken. And once you see it, you you can't ever unsee it. So your quote is perfect. Hey, good. I'm glad. Let's go to a couple of things here with with post-op. Number one, you're right. You have this huge database in the custom care mode bank that you can morph into any surgery pretty much because most of the, and I hate using the word recipe because we're always like, it's not a recipe. We have to learn to think about it, but it's like a little recipe that you can follow. And you've done such a good job of putting, like I said, almost anything you can imagine. It's pretty much there. 
you can Google the rest. You can open up your netters for the rest and piece it together. There was a practitioner that reached out a little while ago about all these contraindications with FSM. It's too bad FSM has so many contraindications. And I'm like, what? Where did you hear what? Tell me more. (laughs) I don't know about this giant list of contraindications because for the most part, it's not a big list and it's quite safe. Um, What happened was there were three people who shall go unnamed who put the entire frequency list So they had machines, they didn't teach courses, and so the people that bought their machines had to have frequencies to put on them. Right. And they put the entire frequency list on the internet. And I was in Chicago. I called Kevin, and he bought the domain, vangelderfrequencies.com, And that night, like within minutes of the time that I found out about these things. And the problem with just having a list of frequencies, they're not contraindications, but it's what our students are taught to think about. Almost all of the precautions are when do you run or not run 81 hertz? Right. Do you want to run 81 hertz in the bone marrow? No. How about the kidney? No. Sinuses? Nope. Lungs? Nope. If you give untrained people, these were on the internet with no wall, no training. And you give untrained people these frequencies. It's wow. Maybe I can change blood pressure. I can increase red blood cell formation by treating increased secretions in the kidney. Our students know you don't get to pick which secretion you're going to increase. So we don't run 81 on the kidney. I'm pretty sure that's what this person was referring to. At least I hope it is because we only have four. Pregnancy, don't do it. Yeah. Cancer, don't do it. Please don't treat the cancer. You can treat the patient. And we have a question already from that. Yeah. What are the other ones? Pacemakers. Again, that's a caution. That's a caution. And it's like we found out that if it's above the collarbone and below the belly button, it's not a problem. And true confessions, one day, I guess my history was incomplete or the patient forgot about it, but I'm treating his ribs and I've got a washcloth over his chest. And I said, what's this little scar? And he said, oh, that's my pacemaker. (laughs) I took the contacts off and asked for his card and called the tech support. He was fine. He had no ill effects. It doesn't affect. And insulin pumps make me nervous. We've never had a problem, but just unplug them. It's not a contraindication. What was she talking about? That's what I I was asking. Right away, I just think about pregnancy, pacemakers, and cancer. I guess that's just from the core. Those are the three that always stood out to me. And again, it's just asking questions. When I was pregnant, I always treated people and I didn't use gloves and my kids are normal for all types of purposes. Actually um, extraordinary in very many ways. 
Yes, they are. I hope they're not listening today. So there is, yeah, pregnancy. And then what was the other one that, so I was thinking about those and then she had brought up pumps or stimulators that she had heard. You can't treat patients with pumps or stimulators. I'm not sure. Uh, And the thing is, I don't know what Shannon Gosen is teaching. I don't know what the MEND is doing. So she may have a different set. So this person may have taken a a course from her and whatever. Spinal cord stimulants all have off switches. So you just turn them off if you have any concerns. Yeah. All of the pumps, except for baclofen, so morphine pumps, I think morphine pumps for sure have an off switch and baclofen pumps do not. So in ALS, you have a baclofen pump that's set at a certain rate. They don't have an off switch, but all of these things are so well shielded. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to go into a grocery store through one of those little electric eye door things because they work on RF. So many. So again, I just wanted to clarify those, but yeah, the contraindications I think are not contraindications, more like just like you said, cautions. I'm glad that you put the information out there once the information was out there. I called George that night. I still remember it. It was 11 o'clock at night and I was in tears, just furious at the people that had done it. Just they're going to hurt somebody. and we're the ones that are going to get in trouble for it. And so I stayed up that night, wrote up the frequency precautions and why, and you'll find them. So bengelderfrequencies.com, right? And cardiac arrhythmias was the other one that she said that you can't treat people with. And I was like, what? No, I don't even talk about that. So that's got to be ghosting again. Uh, I wasn't sure if something changed or whatever, but those were. If somebody's, and atrial fib, you can run increased secretions in the vagus and see if you can bring it down. Somebody's in VTAC, they're in the emergency room. They're not in a PT clinic or a chiropractor's office. They're, if they're in VTAC, they can't get a deep breath and they're going to the ER. If somebody walks into your office, you do their pulse and it's 130. You can run 81 and 109 for about 10 or 15 minutes and then you call an ambulance right. or you make them promise and you write down in your chart advised patient to do, proceed directly to the emergency room everything has to be charted yep. and so you got 10 or 15 minutes to deal with an arrhythmia on your own with just 81 and 109 yeah which brings me to something I never ever wanted to talk about, but I had a patient come in who bought a a men device and she showed me the Vegas protocol that's on that device. The detail, because there is a Vegas protocol. The whole thing is about turning down the Vegas. That's a good fix. It's all Stephen Porges and Porges's theory. He's a psychologist, not a neuroanatomist. His theory is that the vagus is too active and patients get into a freeze state, like fight, flight, or freeze. I've seen one patient 
in the seven years we've been treating the vagus, one patient that needed the vagus quieted down. Everybody else, every other condition we see, the vagus is subactive and needs to be improved secretions so that it reduces anxiety, increases BDNF, improves digestion, quiets the immune system, blood sugar, all that stuff. And this program, I've never talked about a a device, a different device. I don't care. It's about the frequencies, but these frequencies in that vagal protocol, I am convinced that those will cause harm. Yeah. And I guess my face was just because I, I always have it again, drilled in my brain. The vagus turns off when there's infection, stress, and trauma. I typically see infection, stress, and trauma clinically all the time. I'm always thinking their vagus is off. Their vagus is off. How do we support them so we get the vagus turned back on? I think about this breaker that we're trying to like support until it like flips out and it turns off again. This is the way my brain works. So yeah, I'm just wondering where that would come from too. It comes from Stephen Porges. He wrote a book and he talks about the dorsal vagus. There's only one place where there are two vagal nuclei and that's in the medulla. There's the nucleus accumbens and there's the dorsal vagal nucleus. Once they leave the brain, it's 109. Right. Right. So if you're going to do anything, we deal with the nuclei by doing 40 and 94, quieting the medulla, which is where the vagus starts. It's the only place where there is a dorsal vagus. Once it leaves, you've got a left branch that goes to the ventricles. You've got a right branch that goes to the atria. You've got anterior branch that goes to the vocal cords, saliva, the palate, the motor. When you say your uvula goes up, your palate goes up. Swallowing, the lower esophageal sphincter, all of those are controlled by 109, the vagus. You turn the vagus down, not, I I part ways with Porges because what he's talking about exists in the medulla. And even Neil Nathan asked me, I wish we had a frequency for the dorsal vagus. It's the dorsal root of the vagus or something. It's Neil, there isn't one. There is no dorsal vagus. Once it leaves the brain, look at the anatomy. Yeah. So anyway, I have no other thing to say about any of the other protocols that are on that device, but the vagus protocol, please look at it, modify it so it's correct, put in your own version. And there has been one patient where the vagus was obviously too jacked up. And right. she really was in the freeze state and her heart rate was um, really low. Right. So it's okay. So if you had somebody, I'm just thinking about the pre-Vegas, not really pre-Vegas, but like before we were really using one of mm-hmm. To me, that would have indicated sympathetics and parasympathetics using right. 4562 versus 81709. And then actually to get the heart rate up, you can do 81 and 562. Right. That'll bring it up. Right. So we can manipulate the autonomics, increase secretions in the sympathetics. That's peripheral. That's in the thoracic spine. It's after it leaves the brain. The autonomics are the parasympathetics, the sympathetics, and the vagus. The vagus is its own system. 
interacts with, because the sympathetics react when there's a tiger chasing you through the woods. Sympathetics tell the brain, excuse me, there's this tiger thing. The brain tells the vagus, you should be quiet now because there's germs and tiger spit and we're going to get bit. Right. And we need sugar to run our muscles so we can run away, increase heart, all that stuff. Right. So it's all incredibly intermixed and integrated. I wonder if I want to try it on myself to see how it would even feel, because to me, that almost makes me just not feel good thinking of using that. I did. I might do the same thing, except that I have an autoimmune thing and I'd really rather not turn off my Vegas. True story. But that's always the first thing is I want to try things on myself to see how it feels and what it does. And Um, it must have been, I don't know, but so she must have tried it on some people and had some success maybe, but it scares me. Yeah, I could see that. I just, like I said, I, my face is just trying to think through why, why you do that. If you, yeah. once you know the functions of the Vegas, why would you want to turn it down? Unless you totally believed Stephen Porges and ignored all the other neuroscience that's out there. Right. Once you meet Kevin Tracy, how can you? Yeah. I don't, and you see what the Vegas in any way. So I will get off that rant. No, it's good because we're going through the whole, let's think through why something would be cautioned or contraindicated or, yeah, okay. We're going to go down the surgical route because there was an email that we had from YouTube that I wanted to bring up. But this person, I think, is the same person that wrote the question about mastectomy. So let's okay about that one talking about frequencies can be used after mastectomy due to cancer to help recover more quickly after surgery yes can you please give more information about frequencies that can be used to support cancer treatment example frequencies to reduce anxiety or depression and can be used during cancer treatment along with what we're saying this is perfect sure the when it comes to cancer number one the theory is that the mastectomy has removed the cancer they decided to do a mastectomy instead of just a lumpectomy. And so the cancer has gone. So you treat it the way you would any other surgery. Stop the bleeding, reduce the inflammation, trauma paralysis, allergy reaction, and think through the tissues, including the nerves. And then in the advanced, we do talk about frequencies to support patients who are going through conventional cancer therapy. So there are frequencies for the nausea associated with chemotherapy. And that's central. My friend John had a chemo pack on when I went up to see him and he was being treated for lung cancer, I think. But he also had a lung transplant and he had cancer in his transplanted lung, but he tried chemo anyway for his family. So they knew he'd done everything. And He's an internist. And I said, where does the nausea come from? Is it the stomach? He said, no, it's the brain. The chemotherapy is so toxic. It hits the brain. And the nausea centers in the medulla and the midbrain. So we treated toxicity in the midbrain, toxicity in the medulla. He slept for an hour. And when he woke up, he finished his two days of chemo pack without any return of nausea. So that was good. Radiation burns. Radiation is the gift that keeps on giving. So it changes the DNA. It kills the cancer cells, theoretically, because it damages the 
the fast growing DNA in the cancer cells. So they do it just to prevent any stray cells that they miss during the surgery and zap those. Well, it ends up giving the patients a pretty severe sunburn. And there's nothing to stop the radiation from going on through. So the first patients I saw post-radiation had burns in their esophagus, so it was head and neck radiation. Their ears were sunburned and an inch and a half thick. And I used two frequencies for radiation plus the frequencies for inflammation and think in three dimensions, blood vessels, esophagus, spinal cord, brainstem, skin, cartilage. We had a patient, a student at a course who was a nuclear scientist and he was missing part of his ear because they used it to rebuild his nose because he was in a reactor accident where there was a nuclear blast, got a lot of radiation, treated his neck for woody neck, treated his face for scar tissue, and his range of motion was really limited. And he said something about brain fog and balance. So if you look at the path of the radiation, I treated radiation and inflammation in the medulla, the cerebellum, the midbrain, and the cortex, and the range of motion in his neck and his balance changed. It was extraordinary. So over the last 27 years, treated a fair amount of the long after effects. So people that have had radiation seven to 10 years ago, they come in with something called woody neck. So we're in Kuwait. This guy comes in with 20 degrees of motion and his neck like literally feels like wood. And 60 minutes later, he had 60 degrees and pretty much normal range of motion and he could swallow. So you can treat the radiation burns at the time and help prevent stuff. But if you get them years later, there's a whole section where we talk about how to deal with esophageal strictures that are caused by head and neck radiation. Same thing with breast cancer. The anxiety and depression during cancer treatment, some of that is reasonable because they're you're scared. Yeah. And anxiety and depression are also caused by inflammation and toxicity. Sure. So toxicity in the midbrain, inflammation in the midbrain are the source of both anxiety and depression. And so if they're using chemotherapy. Inflammation, toxicity, the midbrain, the medulla, and then the emotional frequencies and the concussion protocol. That's what Harry would do when he treated cancer. Right. Um, is concussion, uh, support the adrenals. They're depressed in part because their adrenals are fried. Adrenals, emotional protocols. He would adjust the spine and treat acupuncture meridians as well. Yeah, Derek put a nice point at the bottom, focus on detoxing the anesthetics, right? Like after surgery, that's a huge component that is, I think, most of the post-op that you have. And then, yeah, go on. Kate Adams, she 
was the massage therapist in my office starting in about when Kate 1998 to that was anyway and then she was my therapist she is the reason that we know that scarring in the ureter releases the psoas because I was the original guinea pig for that great um, five years suppositories before you jump to the, the next one, I want to just say to you about frequencies to reduce anxiety or depression during cancer treatment. Again, this may be like super simplistic to look at, but if you can get somebody to sleep. Oh, true. At night. Yep. Otherwise, to borrow your phrase, you're bailing out the boat with one hand and shooting holes in the floor with the other. So again, I, I don't want to oversimplify something, but using the concussion protocol at night to get that person to sleep is going, it's, it doesn't matter, cancer, whatever it is, getting somebody to sleep is a big thing. So I just wanted to make sure to not forget about that concussion protocol at nighttime. Before I get to Kate, Robert, not sure if you said seizures. Seizures aren't a contraindication. We don't ever run current through the brain. So that's the only concern about seizures. And there is clinical evidence that running the concussion, like one practitioner who was having grand mal seizures, she'd sleep for three days, have one conscious day, have another grand mal seizure. So basically she had four days a month, five days a month where she was conscious we ran the concussion protocol on her and the seizure frequency went down. The other thing is that vagal nerve stimulators have been approved for the prevention and treatment of seizures. So I would add, you just contacts around the neck, contact on the tummy, run concussion in Vegas. And if you can get the patient to get a magnetic converter and run it on themselves every night, you just put it down by their tummy away from their head. And yeah, so seizures aren't a contraindication and we never run current through the brain. That was another precaution that was not on those lists. Right. All right. You ready for Kate? Yeah, let's do it. All right. I've been working with a 23 year old traumatic brain injury client for five years. He's had to use suppositories for bowel movements. I decided to run 321 81 in 47, the digestive system, which is one of those frequencies I don't believe in. Bam, he cleaned out with a suppository every time I use it, and it lasts about a week. Wow. Wow. Traumatic brain injury, Kate, almost every mechanism of TBIs involves a whiplash or diffuse axonal injury in the medulla. And that affects the vagus. Try torn and broken in the medulla. Trauma paralysis, obviously concussion. But the vagus starts in the medulla. And when you have a traumatic brain injury, depending on which way your head went attached to your neck, you can have traction injury in the vagus nerve that slows down bowel function. So I try treating the vagus as well as I I think it's brilliant to treat. I never would have guessed at 47, but well done. That's awesome. 
but I guess I'm just neurocentric. <laughs> Sometimes it is the tissue, right? I, I like the train of thought 321 paralysis, mm-hmm. right? It, sure. not, nothing is moving in there. Makes sense. Makes sense to my brain. Thanks, Kate. That was very cool. Way to go. Hi, Kate. Thank 1999. You. That wow. is when it was. No, it's, uh, and then she retired and just left me alone out here. I'm a massage therapist. Okay. You take Maddie. Okay. Hi, Maddie. Maddie has a patient who had lumbar surgery three years ago, has ongoing nerve injury and numbness into his left top of foot. I'm able to run 13396 with scarring in the nerve with great success. And his sensory map improves with treatment, which lasts for about four to five days, but it doesn't hold. Current numbness is between big toe and second toe. He no longer has numbness on the side of his foot. Okay. So what was the lumbar surgery? Wait, I can't. It was probably L5S1 because numbness between the big toe and the second toe is the end of, it's the hallmark spot for the L5 nerve root. Yeah. Can't run 40 and 396 or 81 and 396 makes his pain and temperature. He has RSD, Maddie, right? And 81 feels cold to touch and he feels it to be cold. And he had an L5S1 vasectomy. Yeah, it's because that's the L5 nerve root. So Mm -hmm. scarring in the nerve, four to five days, doesn't hold. And, And the sciatic nerve, which splits up into L4 and L5, has a big fat pad around it as it goes through in between the hamstrings. So maybe try sclerosis in the adipose as yeah. well as if scarring in the nerve works. That's what I was thinking too. If scarring, especially with the sciatic, if scarring in the nerve works, then sclerosis in the adipose should be really next best thing is and 40 and 81 with the nerve is my go-to so i'm at a loss as to why those two would make the pain and temperature worse the 4396 and 81396 makes his pain and temperature in his foot worse those cold to touch yeah and he feels it to be cold also then what does 40 and 562 or 81 and 562 do? Because the cold is the sympathetics are disconnected, but L5S1, the, the sympathetic plexus is at L1, T12. It's way up high. Sometimes be like the go between 40 and 81. Okay, so 40 and 562 is running concurrently for temperature. Try 81 and 562 because sometimes the temperature is cold because the sympathetics are disconnected. If you go back and read about the RSD, the sympathetics are disconnected and there's all these receptors. So you could try 81 and 562 and see if you can get the sympathetics to reconnect. I'm glad 13 works, but then I guess just try 3 and 97 sclerosis in the adipose and get the fat pad freed up from the fascia and the hamstrings and then down into the tibial nerves. That's what I was going to say. So for me, anytime scarring works, so 13 works, I always think, okay, if that's working, what are the neighbors? Because it's never just scarred in itself. It's usually scarred to its neighbors. So Mm -hmm. if a nerve is scarred, adipose is going to be next. 
You can even try another one of your ones that you don't like is nerve sheath. Sometimes I will try and that. And the fascia, because the, the nerve is glued to the fascia. Yes, I have this very cool um, picture in the Sports Advanced of the nerve being um, scarred to fascia. It's like this very cool matrixy strangulation picture. So I always think of that as it's oh, cool. So nerve, adipose, fascia. Because sometimes like we, we get caught up on the A channels and sometimes we can just think more of the tissue type, what is around there. So that's why netters is great. And just open it up. Okay, if this is stuck, what's around there? When the core now, there's a cross section. So that story about the marathon runner with the weak glute that was caused by the groin pull. Yeah. Well, there's a cross section picture that shows femoral artery femoral nerve, the fat pad around it, the fascia, the muscles, how it all crosses and what's attached to what. Yeah. And when you can see this, if you can get your head to turn it in three dimensions and see the cross section, it brings it home. I bet yours is more fun, but. (laughs) It's just a different way of looking at, again, it's just like trying to throw pictures of something that you've seen a thousand times but you're just looking at it in a completely different way Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and the phrase everything is connected to everything that's a thing oh wait what about scarring in the dura Ooh. so if you do a discectomy infusion at l5s1 that l5 nerve root comes out at the dura it could be adhered there. That's a thought. And then, okay, look how we're thinking about this. I love this. So again, when now that I'm like teaching this, I think if scarring worked, again, how did it get scarred? It didn't just get scarred from outer space. So then I go back and think, okay, well, if scarring worked, then maybe trauma, paralysis, all the events that led up to the scarring might need to be undone. And torn and broken. Yes. So again, it it tore and broke, which is why it scarred because it was torn. And before it torn and broke, there could have been trauma. Has anybody used torn and broken in the nerve with any good result? Like ever? I have. Okay. Athletes with like nerve traction injuries. Yes. Okay. I, I haven't run it that long because it takes the pain down right away. So then I'm just like, okay, moving on. Sweet. Okay. Note to self. Because I know the nerve never really tear. I mean, it doesn't have to be a complete tear, but when something, the way I look at it, anytime something stretches again, where it's like about to snap when we're going from elastic to plastic, that's going to set off the whole cascade of stretch reflex. Everything tightens up, compensation. Inflammation. All the things. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, and then, so if 13 is working, 13 has been the biggest one, 13, 396. I would also ask you to like through the range also, right? It needs to be mobilized. So sometimes what I find when 13 doesn't hold, it's because you've undone a lot of it in the moment, but it also just needs to be mobilized again in a safe environment. I'll even get a patient to say, wow, this feels really good. This feels safe. This feels movable. Again, that's like running 40 and 89 at the same time, because if something's adhered and you give it space, it can be vulnerable, 
right? Your central nervous system is just, oh, we're not supposed to be over here. We're supposed to be tight. So I start thinking about it in those ways as well. So when things aren't holding, why isn't it holding? And the scar tissue from the surgery, they would have gone in from the back. The question is, if they went in posterior, they would have done a laminectomy. There's blood. There'll be adhesions in the dura. So maybe, right? If, and being Maddie, she's probably already done this, but you lay them on their back and bring the knees up a bit and then very gently scarring in the nerves, scarring in the dura, rock the knees like three to five degrees, really slow, wait for the cross links to loosen and then rock it. And when it stops, just stop. You bring it back to neutral, go the other way. When it gets stiff, the patient and the patient's nervous system feels safe. That helps. So is the scarring at the site of the surgery or along the track of the nerve or all of the above? Right. I'm really glad that 13 and 396 changed the sensory map. That's fascinating. Right. That is interesting. So Kate had asked, what about the 58s? So I'm not a fan of 58s used anywhere but the viscera. Yep, me too. I've gotten to that point. Yeah. I try them every now and again when nothing works, but I've never. Oh, hypertensive too. He's hypertensive? Wow. Sympathetics? And sleep apnea. I hate to say that, but anybody that is on more than one blood pressure medication has to be checked for sleep apnea. Right. Really interesting. See, I love the way we just went down in two different tracks. <laughs> getting yes. Different like ideas. And that's what I love about this is that there's not just that recipe. It's okay. If 13 worked a, yeah. what else, what are the neighbors? And then how did, if scarring worked, how did it get scarred? And what scarred the little yeah. ligaments where the nerve comes out of the dura, like they have to cut that to get to the disc yeah and then they sew it back up theoretically or they have to so there's bound to be scarring there and that's where the nerve leaves is that yeah he, and, uh, he and the periosteum oh yeah periosteum he is skinny not overweight getting a sleep study okay skinny hypertension sleep study yep and then kidneys but that's another conversation yeah far up wow and scarring is like the opposite of surgery but it's the same thought process yeah it is stop the bleeding and the first three days especially so i have a patient that just had surgery the third surgery on her ankle in four months yeah. Anyway, and day one protocol after I wrote it, it was six hours long. And at least two hours of that was, or an hour and a half of that was stopping hemorrhage. Everything else was trauma paralysis, allergy reaction, and inflammation. But stopping the bleeding keeps the pain down. 
And like on day three, your pain level was really high. Then I found out she has an L5S1 disc and her pain is down on her foot and her lateral ankle. And it's that's the L5 nerve root. Sorry. So now it's like the pain in her foot may not be surgical. It may be from the L5S1 disc and the L5 nerve root has inflammation in the nerve on there. And again, going back to where we started with education, it's funny how this podcast does this every single time we stop this part, but it, it is about the education of just expanding the way you're thinking about something. And you can never not think about, I wonder how that happened. I, I had all these new patients this week. Fantastic. The universe is sending me these knock them out of the park, super motivated, really easy. I love it. And then, then the pessimist in me is great. Well, what's going to happen next week? Because this week went a little too smooth already. Yeah. But I'm trying not to put that out there, but mm. I had somebody who came in with a chronic wrist injury, really easy, followed up to a couple mechanical problems with the elbow, of course, with the shoulder, got everything sorted through. Like, wow. No one's ever looked at my shoulder before. You play all sorts of racket sports. Why would nobody look at your shoulder? See, and I can say that's a good face. I, I find that we're just really myopic when it comes to assessing and diagnosing. So if somebody says, yeah, pain is here, everybody just looks there. But why? And just at racket sports, practitioner at the Denver seminar, my thumb hurts. And I'm, he's a chiropractor, so he does a lot of adjusting. And I just went, that's the C6 nerve root. No, it's my thumb. It's a towel around his neck, washcloth on his hand, 40 and 396. And I cheated and I did also a second machine on just inflammation and the periosteum, just because this could be sore on its own. Sure. Done. Right. Done. 60 minutes later, thumb is completely pain free. Right. And then put my finger up in between his SCM and his Adam's apple. And there's, ow. I said, that would be the five, six and six, seven disc bulge that make your thumb sore. So how do you look at the wrist without looking at the elbow and the shoulder and the neck? And this is even like without FSM, right? Like FSM has, again, this reiterated, we look at the body as a whole. And I I think it's a slide from the core and the concussion. This is bad. I don't remember what it is. I'm pretty sure it's concussion. It's treat these areas because you can like, and again, so now you have to go back and think about these areas because you can have an effect on them. That's the biggest shift. Speaking of plasticity in the brain, that quote you started with, that's the biggest shift with FSM. It's like, when I, the biggest mistake I made for literally almost 20 years, 15 years teaching it was thinking that I was teaching frequencies. Yeah. And we're not the both of us teaching people how to think about injury, recovery, repair, that whole process when you have frequencies to use as a tool. Right. It changes the game, changes how you think about it, changes how you approach it. And you treat the nervous system because you can. Yes. 
and getting in the core, I've got to figure out a way to introduce it earlier, but I'm not sure how. Afraid to move it doesn't come until we do the nervous system and it's got to come when you're doing myofascial pain and scarring recovery because the brain is afraid to move it. Yeah. And because we undo things so quickly, it's even more impossible because even before FSM, after I would do a treatment, I would get somebody walk around, reset the joint kinesthetic receptors and GTOs, get them to do a couple you would do your range of motion after just to see if your treatment actually did improve range of motion. Part of it was also to show the patient, Hey, it doesn't hurt as much anymore. And you want to get those proper firing patterns on board as soon as possible. I think that is a big component to why things don't hold is people don't do the follow-up range of motion assessment. So not only is it important for your charting, it's important for the patient feedback to be like, oh, this does actually move and this doesn't actually hurt as much. But for a selfish reason, I want those GTOs, joint kinesthetic receptors to get back on board as fast as possible. Absolutely. And then the other thing I I do is when they're still on the table and I'm treating their neck, maybe neck and shoulder, have them reach up and feel their neck. Yes. That, to me, when we did the pain and injury module and I, you were treating my neck and I had never really asked patients to do that until you asked me to feel my neck. And what an amazing exercise that is. Cause then your sensory cortex says, wait, my neck. Why do I have like silly putty in my neck where I used to have guitar strings? Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing exercise. And then the range of motion in the shoulder is part of it. Oh, it doesn't hurt now. But then I treated a shoulder last week and reached down and grabbed his lower trap and pinched it. And I said, this is the muscle. I want you to take your shoulder blade down towards your belt. And he went, what? Yeah. So it took him a few minutes to find it as, nope, not your rhomboids. Nope, yeah. not your trap. Nope, down, down. Yeah. Oh, okay. So then he found it. And then he hasn't talked to his serratus in years. Yes. So it's like, there's no way for your shoulder to stay good until your serratus and your lower trap automatically stabilize the shoulder blade. So then your humeral head can move. And it's for a minute, the brain is like walking and chewing gum and rubbing its head and patting its stomach all at one time. And then we run 81 and 84 and have them activate the serratus and the lower trap. And then slowly move their shoulder. And it's, oh, okay. I love that face when the light bulb and the synapses happen and they're just like, wow. Yes. Oh, Maddie is sad that you're not coming to Australia. I'm sorry. I'll come next year. This October was just a little too busy. Yeah. She's actually got a life and kids and stuff like that. And I got to tell you, I'm not going next year. You can go. There we go. And you get to pick a month that is not crazy. Yes. 
because if you build it, they will come. I've learned that. So people have to come to Kona. That's where. <laughs> yeah, Kona is going to be fun. Sports course in, in Kona. We still have space. Yay. That's it. That's four o'clock. We did it. We did it again. Really? It was really fun. I was so much fun. This, this was, was great. I'm glad we talked through all the things that we talked through. And now you get to do your quote again, because I really liked it. Now it's even better. Oh, yes. Let's do that. A man's mind stretched by new ideas may never return to its original dimensions. And once you see it, you can't ever unsee it. And therefore, you're welcome. And I'm sorry. Yes. (laughs) We just did all that. I'm sorry. And you're welcome. I love it. I quote you all the time. It just came to me because it was real. (laughs) It is. Yeah. We're going to create a brochure or webinar or something about how to implement FSM in your practice. That's one of the advantages of doing the course at the clinic. Yes. You get to see what the room's set up like, at least for physical medicine. You have more toys than I do, but I have a separate gym. So that's coming. That will improve the plasticity and the things that you can see for yourself. Yeah, I think that's a very important component because for having so many practitioners, it's not like just chiropractors take it, right? We have so many different walks of life that join us. And so to just see when they're on the plane going home, how it's going to work into their lives, I think is an important uh, component. And you can watch them trying to figure it out by about day three. I really have to, how am I going to, now what? I can't make that a separate course, but we'll figure something out. It would be neat just to, I know we're running late and I have to go too, but we had this at the symposium a few years ago where you had myself and we had a Mm. PT and a chiropractor and an MD and all talked about what our typical day would look like and talked about insurance billing and setup and all that stuff. So that might be a neat little webinar having multiple people on and talking a little bit about how they Well, and we can maybe, I still have to staff the advanced for 24. So maybe we can do an implementation panel and we have every license that is allowed to touch people and use electrical stim. Yeah, that might be neat. Yeah, that would be good. Hi, Derek. See you soon. See you next week. The Frequency Specific Microcurrent Podcast has been produced by Frequency Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations. No person should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content provided in any podcast without first seeking appropriate medical advice and counseling. No information provided in any podcast should be used as a substitute for personalized medical advice and counseling. FSS expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on or any contents of this podcast.